The Q Affair. Part 2. The Q Woo. While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction. So it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter 17. They introduced a new player onto the stage now, finding him on some conspiracy website. He knew none of the other players involved, yet we were supposed to believe he was suddenly interested in making videos about Desiree. He did his job diligently, which was to mock and berate Desiree on video any way he could think of. Anyone who had ever hated Desiree, of course, rushed to be in his chat section each night to take part in the circus. But I was very wary of this new arrival and anticipated another round of pressure about to be applied to me. I felt the tiredness of the months of trying to discover who I was really with in there, in Twitter DMs, begin to wash over me when I realised I was possibly in for months more of even worse than I'd had already. But I knew I'd never retreat, even from the vile sexual stuff I was having to look at on my timeline. Would never let them drive me off the internet. And I knew the police could do nothing unless it got even worse and another death threat was made, or something real world, that alarmed them as much as me. I set my stubborn little chin into the wind and faced into the storm of hatred blowing wildly around me. After watching a few of these live streams, I decided she was the carrot that the game players were dangling for me, thinking I'd be donkey enough to go for it when I saw their videos. A whole series of manipulated videos about her, where her head grew and shrank like an Alice in Wonderland cake, now larger, bulging like an alien, now pointy-headed, with an enormous, giant blancmange of a chin, wobbling as she droned on, were quickly produced for the shows. They sped up the soundtracks of clips of her videos, then suddenly slowed them down, much to the amusement of the spectators in chat, who, delighted by the new circus act, were in a paroxysm of mirth quickly, and entranced by the new arrival, declaring their deep love of him within days of his arrival, just as Q had for me shortly after his arrival on my channel. I sat in chat with them a few times, still not sure how I felt, before suddenly feeling certain of the waves of evil emanating from his channel, which I was almost convinced now could be a disembodied entity after all, that moved silently through the swarm and found the good among them to torment. And I decided I had to get out of there, no matter how welcome I was being made to feel. It was fakery, this welcome mat put out for me by the host. A trick to lull me into feeling wanted after assaulting me first and it didn't matter how many times they winked and mentioned the number in chat it wouldn't make me like the show or the friends in chat that encouraged me to enjoy the entertainment and have a laugh with them at Desiree's expense.
the number didn't make it good or right what they were doing. It didn't make me magically hate Desiree more to be in on the evil game because they were egging me on to do so. Here's your scapegoat, they were saying, and you get to jeer her with us. Won't that be fun? We know you hate her, so you must want to do that. That's what they were offering. And it sickened me that they thought I was that shallow. They seemed to genuinely think that I would join in chat to do to another human being what had just been done to me. Maybe they couldn't see the difference between one person making a few light-hearted jokes about someone who had been harassing them nightly or telling lies on their channel for ages to gullible subs and serious ongoing harassment like this, setting up a whole channel just to harass someone. And for how long had this person been hired to do this? I felt sure Terence was behind the hiring. I had a really, really bad feeling about this new channel. I beat a retreat from the horrible atmosphere. I became the other main topic on their channel then, after my rejection of the carrot, with Desiree and I lumped together for nightly derision. The host spared us no indignity. Again, there was a lot of sexual stuff. Despite the fact he seemed to be gay, he liked to talk about my breasts, and someone had obligingly zoomed in on them as they made videos from my videos, since my original videos were often not salacious enough for them. The chat section specialised in name-calling, and Terence turned up frequently to be fated by one and all. The anti-Fandango videos came out then, and Terence and co giggled and passed remarks, like an emperor and his sycophantic entourage as the others in chat pronounced themselves at having arrived at the cool kids' table now, before launching into the name-calling fest for the evening. The host had them in training, it appeared, as the shows got increasingly violent, without anyone seeming to notice or object, as it did over the weeks. He had a device of banging on a pot lid under his desk, whenever something mildly clever was said in the video he'd hijacked that was in danger of humanising the person he wanted his chat to keep demeaning. Often he did this when the short videos clipped from my live streams were played, which at the time were mostly giving information about the numbered game and where to read the blueprints online for the op they were running on YouTube to create Discordian narratives to mess up people's minds so they couldn't distinguish between reality and a ridiculous narrative anymore. If they hadn't been edited down to the bits where I said mmm or ah while thinking, the banging lid was employed while my breasts were discussed, or he used maniacal laughter to cover up what was being said and further destroy any desire to visit my channel to see my far duller live stream. His job was to persuade them that I was the clown, not him. I thought he did a poor job of that, but knew that the people in chat hated me, hated Desiree and loved 
more than anything, a scapegoat to take their feelings out on. He gave them what they wanted. They wanted a wild, hedonistic party, and they didn't want it to ever stop. I was saddened to see Silver Moon, the first person I'd ever been friendly with in YouTube, a fellow early target of Desiree, in there with a fair-weather friend, enjoying joining in on calling me a potato-eating Irish IRA terrorist, leprechaun, drunken old hag, pig, etc., etc., with the others, all competing to think up new insults for the targets the host presented for them to hate. On and on it went, Desiree getting the same treatment. I went in a few times to tell them it was too much, even stuck up for dopey old Desiree, but of course there was no stopping them. People don't want to stop the party when it's hopping in there. The host played shorter clips of baths filled with blood, Japanese art house movies with nudity, intercut with kissing cowboys, circling back to Desiree, talking about murder and abortion and my breasts, then headache-inducing, lid-banging and head-banging rock bands, then back to him, cackling like a hyena. They swilled back beer and nachos in chat, or he dressed up in different shirts and jackets to entertain them. I dressed up myself once for their show's hijacking of mine as an experiment. They used to wait for my live streams on a particular day of the week because they knew I bought one of those glass bottles of wine if I had been to the supermarket. And they liked latching onto my live stream to deprive me of views and to get the chance to call me a drunk. For this one, I dressed up more carefully and did my hair with more care than usual on getting home. Some extra coline around my eyes, some lipstick and rouge, my best leather jacket, holding myself in my chatting up a nice man position. I started the live stream. I clean up good, as they say, and the reaction was shock. They loved it. I looked fantastic. It was freakish. Had I done something to the lens? I was surprised on viewing it later that the women in chat hadn't got these womanly wiles at their disposal. But then, dear reader, I was always a very attractive woman. I just don't flaunt it. Don't need to. I was making a point, though. They began to speculate. Was I an actual witch, as Desiree had once claimed? This woman could not be me. They couldn't come to terms with the idea of my being attractive without also having the accompanying idea I must be likeable. I think their heads melted slightly. They didn't jeer me for about a week after that, and several of them approached my channel wanting to be friends. The host, though evil, was not stupid and could see instantly what I was doing. He declared it a good psyop and turned his attention exclusively back to Desiree for a while to give them time to get over their temporarily interrupted training, re-hating me. I despised and pitied them no less for their primitive shallowness. My trust in people was at a very low ebb 
at the time, since I was becoming very tired by the constant onslaught, which seemed in no danger of ending. Terence, however, brought it to a head himself soon after setting up a channel of his own, as I knew he would, when the more unpleasant aspects of his real personality inevitably started leaking out and ruining the last shreds of his own tattered reputation and his mystique. I think he'd just run out of ideas, since nobody was doing what he wanted, despite all the bullying, and he wasn't managing to control the situation as he'd hoped, so he went all out on his own channel. The other channels weren't enough for him to get satisfaction with, while in the midst of a temper, so he showed up in person. He was a fat little guy who was in poor health. A terrible smoker's cough interrupted his tirades frequently. I feared he'd have a heart attack, frankly, since Jay was forever fainting and having palpitations when you disagreed with him. I didn't doubt he was ill. Nobody functioning at those constant self-created stress levels could not be. I'd always felt sorry for him in that respect. And if it weren't for the fact he was on the run, and the army ahem, had put him in different safe houses, I felt sure they would have set up a permanent bed for him at the local hospital he went there so often. What with claiming he'd been shot or run over, or stabbed by them as well, or they'd broken his arm, anything to get sympathy and get me to stick around for more, whatever it was he wanted from me. By now, I couldn't afford to show much sympathy, as I knew it was manipulation currency in his mind that he thought he could cash in on. It was like a bad movie plot, but clearly the end of the movie was closing in on us if Terence's appearances on the screen were anything to go by. The dream was long over for both of us, I'm sure, but I did feel compassion often, despite how monstrous his behaviour was. Oddly, I felt much less for Desiree, but I don't think it was just that I'd loved Jay. I think it was that she was so oafish and unartistic, while he had some redeeming features, at least, and appreciated beauty, even if his behaviour was so ugly so often, and he, like her, was devoid of any empathy. I heard two other YouTubers express concern for him on seeing those videos, so compassion was not completely dead in absolutely everyone else either, it seemed, even if it was only a very faint flicker, barely visible. I was glad of that. There was so little of it left that it seemed a precious thing to want to hold on to gently and keep safe for some future time when people began to miss it. When the lid banger host deserted him suddenly and just as suddenly teamed up with Fandango instead, to everyone's, I suppose, surprise, Terence had already got others paid off to produce content slamming his enemies. His co-producer of his music videos, who turned out to be a co-partner in his puzzle activities as well, peeped out of the shadows momentarily for one of these to produce a small check 
for content creation made payable to a QAnon channel who would attack Terence's enemies at his scripted behest. This guy was a B-rated Hollywood type as well, this time in music, and had a music studio, which maybe was where Terence was getting some of his musical output from. The studio floor cuttings came to mind, except for the fact that with digital music, there would be no discarded score or traces of proof of any real composing on Terence's part, as he'd claimed. He'd played with world-famous orchestras, according to his channel and blog, but not a single score appeared online in any musical library or concert programme that backed up the claims that he and his sock accounts seeded the garden of his music channel's comments sections with, that he was a prolific composer of many symphonies, concertos, etc., to rival anything Mozart came up with back in the day a genius to rival Beethoven and Bach, and an American treasure who churned out many masterpieces at a blistering pace. I fervently hoped he at least was a composer of some sort, while suspecting that was a fiction as well, because life must have been very depressingly barren by comparison to his own hype, if that weren't the case. There's a protective function in creating art that makes anything else that life presents you with no big problem. Other people seem to get the same kind of satisfaction out of family life, but he didn't have a family anymore, so art was pretty much it for him. He was more reliant on people liking him than I was as a narcissist too. So he was at the mercy of other people's good opinions of him in a way that I didn't have to be. I reminded myself not to worry too much about whether someone who was threatening me and running smear campaigns on me was okay. You can take compassion for others too far and forget about having it for yourself first. You're not much use to anyone else's happiness if you aren't happy yourself after all. Don't you think, dear reader? It was winter and I had survived the heat of the summer on YouTube. The real world was fast becoming as odd as YouTube. I had always found it odd, but now we had an invisible pandemic, apparently, that ravaged its way around the globe, unseen, needing us all to pull together and stay indoors if we were to defeat it. We needed to mask up whenever we poked our heads outside as it was everywhere just waiting to strike and terribly dangerous. The main danger that Americans had on their minds other than that that people all over the world were told to be afraid of was that Donald Trump would have an electric election victory stolen from him in the voting centres and in the postal voting as had been a big fear before the previous election. He'd won then but now the Stop the Steal campaign was revived but with postal voting being added to the worries all kinds of strategies were being employed by the Trump team to make sure it couldn't happen this time even as the fear was ramped up that it could. 
having citizens act as election observers was one idea his team came up with. MAGA folk who were prepared to go to the voting centres and watch through windows as voting counts started and before then even could help by being outside the voting centres, supporting those Trump voters and encouraging them as they went in and make sure the counting was done properly. It was very important their support in this. Their president needed them and they loved him for that. Imagine the shock they felt when, as feared, the vote was lost by such a small margin that all the maggots felt sure, as the president himself did, even the voting machines had been dickied with, as well as votes spoiled, dumped, dead voters voting twice, every dirty trick you could think of those Democrat demons had employed to rob the election that Trump had really won. Trump fought to give the people the president they deserved, filing lawsuit after lawsuit to no avail. He was on the phone to the governor of Georgia and the secretary of state and did everything he could, asking could they not find him the votes he needed to close the narrow gap, pointing out that the people wouldn't be too happy with them if he couldn't. No dice. It was bad and the mood had been very tense on the way into the election. It became more buoyant, though, with Q still on board, keeping morale high, and Trump and the QAnons openly working in tandem, and with everyone all going one together as per the plan. The storm was here, Q said. Finally! Unless it was a false alarm, dare one say it, as it had been several times before, with a few impatient followers over the course of the years President Trump was in office being scolded by the faithful when they'd said they were getting fed up of waiting for arrests and the big storm to come. I had dumped my cue altogether and gone to the police about him. But the Magus and Q and the real patriots stood by their American president in his hour of need as he'd stood by them. And when he urged them to come to a rally in D.C. on the 6th of January, when the votes were to be certified and counts officially completed at the Capitol building, they got in their cars and went. The posters had promised it would be wild, and the event certainly lived up to the promise. The night before, there were prayer meetings and rousing speeches, and on the big day itself, the crowds gathered around the stage on Lafayette Square, a mile and a bit from the Capitol building, where the business end of the voting count was being finally wrapped up to listen to rousing speeches about the stolen election, pray and sing and hear the president tell them they were going to all take a walk together up to the Capitol buildings to let the legislators know how they felt. Patriots were delighted to oblige and set off en masse with QAnons and the Patriot groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, all Trump's most faithful militia-style supporters, and it later turned out his team's personal bodyguards just the day before, while the president went back to the White House to recoup and regroup after his long day, 
which had started with a backstage get-together with family and inner circle at the hospitality tents. They had watched the speeches leading up to his and an upbeat party atmosphere had prevailed as the speechifying progressed through the morning. Into the afternoon, it culminated with his rousing speech, saying he was going to be leading the people to let those legislators know how they felt about the boats being stolen. Johnson was up front with the rest of the patriots, the Trump flags proudly waving as they marched together, minus the president, towards all the barricades set up in a ring around the perimeter of the building. Quite quickly after the first barricades were pulled away, with a few just opened to let the crowds in, the breach of the building itself began. Windows were smashed, a battle ensued as tear gas was employed to no avail to hold back the crowds entering the building. Footage taken on the day included among the many QAnons leading the charge the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys moving in formation up steps in their military-style units among the average magas. One foolhardy QAnon lady, who turned out to be an ex-Air Force vet of 14 years service, who decided it would be a good idea to climb through the broken glass of a door between the Senate and a short hallway, climbed straight into a security guard's line of fire to get into the House chamber where the voting process was being wound up and got herself shot dead for that decision. That wasn't the only death. There were four more. One person was trampled. We saw footage of a police officer on the ground being beaten with an American flag. The crowds were very angry indeed, and it was only surprising that things didn't get much, much worse. As it was, senators, the news photos showed us later, were cowering under a table, somewhere in a back room for hours, waiting for the crowd to be subdued enough for them to re-emerge and resume the final certification of the votes. The footage that was trawled through later by the FBI showed little to no evidence of Antifa infiltration that the Magus claimed caused all the violence that day, before order was restored a few hours later. However, it began to look rather psyopish, if you were the conspiracy type, as how could you explain weirdness like the QAnon guy with the brother who was supposed to be in Antifa? that turned him into the FBI for involvement in the storming, that turned out to have a CNN documentary filmmaker getting all excited about storming the building with him and the great footage they were getting for their planned big TV documentary with the added cherry on top that the guy's dad turned out to be a US Army arms dealer. How had the guy infiltrated the Proud Boys, as he claimed way before the event, in preparation for getting his footage, without getting detected by them, when he was already well known as a freelance agitator in Utah, where he'd been causing trouble as an agent provocateur? 
That kind of weirdness kept turning up in the news stories as you looked up who exactly had done what, when that day, then tracked earlier news stories about the same people. The night before, for example, the same oath keepers that were guarding Roger Stone, the president's media campaign manager, were seen emerging from a meeting with Trump at his hotel. Plenty of others had been buzzing about on the Trump media and strategy team, organising the golden invites as well to the big storm. Not only were they all very organised, way ahead of time for the day, like Q had always said, but the storm was looking like not just a dumb 4chan LARP that took off bigly, but something that took off hugely thanks to some big players involved. Players like General Flynn, who some thought of as Mad Dog Flynn, since he'd been fired for cozying up to Russia, the big lie the demon Democrats told, according to the QAnons. And there were other niggling things QAnons didn't mention in glowing terms much, since they'd helped organise his defence fund, and he was their hero. He had a lot of pals from CIA friends down in YouTube plugging away with narratives to shape public opinion to social media helpers helping cement the idea of his heroism into the minds of YouTubers and make them want to become part of his mind melt weaponized digital army that not just won the first war for Trump, his election in 2016, but had their own oath to fight again for Trump if he was ousted. The spiritual warriors worked towards the new age of enlightenment that was coming, in parallel to others with similar but different schools of religious or spiritual beliefs, and alongside the political truthers, all being fed information through the same platform on networked channels Networks which weren't apparent unless you really dug down to find out. And it was all an organised up from the top. The network went down along the line or up, depending on where you started tracing it from. And you could trace it from the people on the stage that day on up or on down to YouTubers, whichever way you boogied. Either way, it led to organised ops by Five Eyes agencies or agencies working for them and for opposing interests with confusion, chaos and disinfo the stated intention, the goal being to destabilise in order to shape perception, to influence behaviour and gamify it so that ordinary people would do what you wanted them to do to get the outcomes you wanted. The desired outcome, you couldn't help thinking, was to destabilise every institution that held the US together in order to implement something else. It was when you started thinking about the something else that you thought of the usual suspects that ended up making the most money, the highest up, inevitably. It was how the world worked, unless you were living on the hopium they'd fed you and fumed from the heady rhetoric the truther channels had dished out, just as the TV did for years before YouTube did. Trump's team would argue the opposite, 
that it was the other side's PSYOP. And that psyop in the American public was only now becoming a thing that you could appoint staff posts for openly and give rounds of applause for and create stories about aliens and lizard people and whatever else you fancied telling folks because necessary. The other side were doing it. So you had to, to fight them off and win the mind wars. If you kept looking though, you stopped seeing sides. You saw a big pie that was global, that was being fought over the same way that the trademark for a small internet puzzle was being fought for, with the players not caring about who got the small bit as long as they got the biggest bit. Like the puzzle, once the pie was won, the big moral stance evaporated. The trademark for Lieber Locust, once sold by the holder, said to be someone Terence had signed it over to temporarily for safekeeping so that it couldn't be seized as an asset in a court case he was involved in, was no longer the cause of strife and chaos when it wasn't up for grabs anymore. And the trolls fell off from the starboard bows, just as the tribbles had that had invaded the starship Enterprise, causing so much distress to Captain Kirk for a while. Trump, meanwhile, was busy pardoning his friends in the days left to him before he left office, while no pardon was forthcoming for Assange, or even the most loyal supporters who had stormed into the Capitol building for their president that day, while he was sauntering away, not a whirled hair out of place in the balmy air conditioning inside the motorcade and then back to the White House. As for Terence, he had found the perfect woman at last. Desiree could always be relied on to do his bidding once terms were agreed on and they enjoyed the deception deceit and ongoing lies they engaged in on the tube, as well as the numerous fights they had about their terms in the negative contract they had formed. They were each other's destiny and their love of ongoing drama had brought them together like a magnet, never to be separated unless one of them eventually got arrested for something, which seemed like a possibility they teetered so close to the edge of the roof so often. You weren't supposed to know what was what and couldn't see that what the truth was with any of them, of course. The whole thing was a giant disinfo larp to keep you in the dark, scared, manipulated, immobilised, conditioned, whatever they needed you to be, whatever they wanted you to call it while they got what they needed from it, then sold it to you as whatever they wanted it packaged up as. You could sigh up people with anything once you had control over the media you were doing it through. I wasn't that surprised that this op linked up all the way to the top levels of government, as most of the random BS people believe usually is. One of the other photos I'd looked at in the Xmas bunch still had its EXIF information attached. It was a photo from a Q post that Jay had given me in that bunch that was supposed to be my Xmas gift. The photo was taken at the time of morning he claimed that he was at the White House and on the correct day, although it didn't appear to be taken on a camera phone 
with professional lighting and print output formats employed to take it instead. It had played on my mind a bit, but didn't seem as strange now when I knew that those involved in the op had met to strategize and more than once. In fact, groups like Psy Group were widely used by all governments hoping to bend and shape people's perceptions of the world, from hysteria about pandemics to behaviour in response to government policies and perceived threats to society. And this was a tool to help implement the policies they wanted through media outlets and social media platforms alike, with enthusiastic support from the hopefully trusting citizens. If you couldn't get trust, you undermined the platforms that were threatening their trust in you and destabilised the whole thing. You still won the game that way. YouTube and Twitter were two of their favourite platforms to screw around with people on. Facebook being another important one because of its popularity and suitability for spreading information quickly through groups like the one I'd found the numbered plan on. With the apparent failure of the storm that day and the count ordered to be resumed after the few hours of chaos that had interrupted it, spirits among truthers were at a low ebb. Where do they go from here? They maintained that Trump had not really lost, as they'd been programmed to maintain. And it had been the left's doing the destruction that day, not theirs. They parroted and regurgitated what they'd been told to think on videos and in tweets when the tear gas and broken glass were cleared away. Some who were on the stage that day, like the guy the crowd called Sammy, for his resemblance to one of the Rat Pack crooners in the days when Hollywood still had an air of glamour, along with the hedonism, were thinking fast. Now it was vaguely possible they'd be stabbed in the back by Trump and scramble to get their affairs in order to cover their behinds by packing up a few bits and pieces to bug out a while, should the FBI have questions. Sammy's Bitcoin purse made a beautiful pattern reminiscent of a star chart when someone tweeted out a photo of how it looked as he moved significant amounts of money about, distributing it in smaller, twinkling packages of light in the darkness that presumably he hoped would disappear it as he created a new system for its distribution. I would think quite a few were thinking about their Bitcoin arrangements, just in case any promises that may have been made weren't kept after all. Narrator looks at sky thoughtfully. Sounds of a circus float across in the darkness. Here, you'll need these. You watch thoughtfully as I take out a dark snake from the usual pocket about my person. It wiggles to life. I pet it gently, winking naughtily. Don't worry, dear reader, it's friendly. The snake stiffens and becomes a staff. Its little jaws open and I produce a small tied bundle, a checkered handkerchief with the letters JQ embroidered in the corner, which I put in the snake's jaws 
the jaws obligingly clamped down, forming a handy carrying staff. I hand you the bundle and a lamp, which you hadn't noticed before. The bundle contains an apple, I inform you, for when you get hungry in the morning, and a rather comfortable, self-inflating hot air balloon, which will keep you warm in the cold night air as you sleep and refresh yourself for the new day ahead. There's an old temple over there, I punt. You notice we are out of the maze now, and you are pointing towards another maze ahead of us which will keep the rain off you. Everyone needs a roof over their head when it rains and the stars aren't always enough for shelter in a storm. Further fuel is prepared for you and kept dry in the temple and there's a spring to drink from and provide water to wash with your handy hanky before you retire and in the morning. The lucifers to light the fire are in your little bundle too and can be employed if your lamp goes out. So, you see, you're well equipped to continue your adventure further without a guide. You never needed me in the first place. All smoke and mirrors, that was. Laughs merrily. Well, I hate goodbyes. We look into the distance towards the far lights of the circus. Carnival, amusement ground, whatever it is. Too far away to be seen as it's at least a day's journey, if one was curious enough to want to find out. A fragment of music drifts across. You listen, trying to identify the tune. Failing, you turn. The narrator seems to have disappeared. You hold the lamp up and see her cloak on the ground and pick it up. There's the pocket inside with the tiny number 12 on it, but no narrator. Swinging the cloak around your head to protect you from the light drops of rain that are starting to fall, you notice a moth flicker and bash for a moment against its own reflection on the side of the lamp before it flies away, rising and twinkling so that it seems to blend with the stars. How pretty they are, you think, just before you yawn and decide it's probably time to think about finding that temple and getting a good night's sleep. Tomorrow's another day.